0: Hello and welcome to the very first podcast of the Feinberg Family Distinguished Lecture Series here hosted by the University of Massachusetts' own Department of History. My name is Jafar Sheik, and I'm here to introduce you to our year-long event series that explores the U.S. in the of mass incarceration. Today, September 20th, 2016, we broadcast our keynote panel, Woman Incarceration and Carceral Feminism, with Andrea James, Miriam Kaba, Herschel Reeves, and Elias Vituli. The panel is introduced by our very own professor, Marla Miller, and moderated by journalist and writer Victoria Law. Please enjoy the upcoming lively panel. Thank you for listening to the UMass History Department's first podcast.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Marla Miller and I direct the Public History Program in the History Department here at UMass. And I'm privileged to serve as co-chair of this year's Feinberg Family Distinguished Lecture Series. Um, This afternoon, I get to welcome you to today's keynote panel that launches the 2016 series, The U.S. in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Every other year, the History Department organizes this endowed lecture series around a topic at the intersection of history and public policy. The inaugural series commemorated the 50th anniversary of the Brown v. Board decision, and most recently, we explored immigration and migration in the modern Americas. Each year the series features a wide variety of events, from lectures to exhibitions and performances, panel discussions and films. These offerings are planned and carried out in cooperation with other departments here around campus and across the five colleges, and this year we're especially pleased to have arranged a number of events with partners from around the community. These are all listed in your program. So please take a minute to look over that list and thank people you know from those organizations for being partners in this enterprise with us. The Feinberg semester activities are possible only because of the generosity of Mr. Kenneth R. Feinberg, alumnus of the UMass History Department together with his family and friends. Uh, Mr. Feinberg completed his BA in History here with us in the History Department and went on to a distinguished career in law and public service. A brief bio of Mr. Feinberg is also printed in your program, but most notably, Ken served as special master of the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. In a talk on this campus, he articulated his conviction that the study of history is instrumental in understanding and analyzing contemporary events. We in the History Department couldn't agree more. The current Feinberg series was planned by the UMass Amherst History Department in consultation with both community members and faculty around the five colleges. So let me here thank members of the advisory board who are all again listed in your program and who you'll meet through the semester as the series unfolds for their dedication to this collaborative effort. I wanna mention in particular my Feinberg committee co-chair Jennifer Nye. Where's Jennifer Nye? Somewhere here, there she is. And also give a shout out to all the History Department staff and graduate students who made this series with its many, many moving parts, as you can see from all the activity around you, possible. And lastly, I'd like to acknowledge with deep gratitude that I know is shared by a lot of people, the hard work and dedication of the History Department's outreach director, Jessica Johnson, where's Jessica Johnson? There she is, Um, whose vision, creativity, and commitment has in so many ways shaped the incredible year that's about to begin. This robust program includes a free series for K-12 teachers teaching in the age of mass incarceration offered with the Collaborative for Educational Services that will support educators across content areas who want to explore these issues in their classrooms. So if any teacher wants a certificate of attendance tonight or if you're an undergraduate participating in this series for course credit, please find the table in the back with the sign up sheet. Where's that table? Somebody wave over there. There you go, that's where you need to go. Uh, Let me also invite you to the next event in the series, which is a lecture and book signing with Duane Betts, author of A Question of Freedom, Penn New England Award winner and national spokesperson for the Campaign for Youth Justice. His talk, The Circumference of a Prison, Youth, Race, and the Failures of the American Justice System, will be one week from tomorrow at 7 p.m. Wednesday, September 28th, here in the Student Union. A particular pleasure of this year's series has been the chance to connect with a lot of great work happening across the valley in support of currently and formerly incarcerated people and their families. One of those projects is represented here tonight, yes? Um, Confirming that with Jessica. Um, Great Falls Books Through Bars is a new all-volunteer organization based in Franklin County. They send free books, resources, and reading material to people who are currently incarcerated. So please stop by their table here tonight and learn how you can donate books and otherwise get involved. And now I have a whole series of short announcements and I don't want to miss any. So secondly, uh, over the course of the series, we're always going to have these tables of flyers. So if you are part of a group and you'd like to bring flyers at an event, we're happy to put them out. So just connect with Jessica Johnson or myself and let us know, but we'll always have a table ready for that kind of thing. also, we have a table in the back, uh, Kids Zone. So if anyone has children with them and want to sit in the back and color, that's uh, fine. We ha- we're all set up for that in the back on, on my left. Um, let's see. We have books for sale tonight. Um, they're up here up front, including books by our presenters. So if you'd like to do some Buy purchasing here, they books. can be found here. Buy our books. Uh, and if um, you need a parking voucher, for the parking center, the campus center garage, find Jessica Johnson at the end of the night, or they'll be up here at the information desk. So if you need a voucher, if you thought you could park over there and you need a voucher to get out, check in over here. And lastly, we have tea and coffee after the event, a little reception that'll give you a little more time to mingle and chat with the presenters or connect with friends who are here tonight. So, so please stay afterwards and uh, enjoy some co- Pardon me, coffee and tea. Um, Lastly, let me invite you to participate in the series' social media. There's a Facebook page for the series we invite you to like, and also a Twitter feed, hashtag FeinbergSeries, so we, we welcome that. Tonight's panel on women, incarceration, and carceral feminism is the perfect way to launch this series for so many reasons, not least because UMass Amherst students spent the last year looking closely at intersections between incarceration and reproductive justice and ways that incarceration impacts families here in Massachusetts and beyond. Work that will be unveiled here in the Valley next March when the National Traveling Exhibition States of Incarceration arrives. Through that experience, it became crystal clear to us how much activism, and specifically activism around women in incarceration, reframes the way we enter the subject. What happens to our understanding of mass incarceration when we begin with women? And so tonight, to start tonight's conversation, I'm thrilled to be able to introduce someone who's worked to transform movements for social change. Vicki Law, our moderator, is the co-founder of Books Through, Books Through Bars, right? New York City. Uh, she publishes tenacious art and writings by women in prison and is the author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women. Please help me welcome Vicki Law.
2: Thank you, everyone. Thanks for being here. I'm actually going to turn this over in a minute to Hershel Reeves, but before we start, Uh, Two quick housekeeping notes. One, you'll notice that we are all here and the wonderful, amazing Maryam Kaba is at the end and she does not want her photo taken. So please, please, please respect that. She's at the end so you can crop her out of your photo and do not take photos of her. If you have already, please delete them from your camera. The second is we have a kid zone in the back and remember that kids' noises are sounds of our movement growing. So, you can move up, you can move away, you know, but remember that those sounds are the sounds of our movement growing. With that, Herschel, take it away.
0: Mm-hmm. Lyrical liquid verses lounge loosely on my tongue as I search for the urge to spit lines. Reflections like water still in the night, the hypocrisy of the revolution, the fight, the movement, and white folks leading a struggle that they can't possibly be attached to, affording the luxury to wave the flag of racial injustices and fighting against oppression and poverty and who the hell are you to come into my world from the halls of ivy league schools and two-parent households picking fences with 2.5 kids sending your families to nursing homes when they get old with your hemp jewelry Birkenstock wearing crunchy granola eating and make decisions about what's right socially or ethically correct politically for my world, my people, who have a hard enough time just being black in a damn day, I got issues like wondering if this man who I've been laying with, who could make love to me ever so passionately, who could bring me to such ecstasy with the twiddle of his thumb on my clit, is... Mm secretly desiring men and thinking about digging to sleep when he's with me and feeling like he can't share that shit with me, all the while I'm in constant thought thinking about HIV plaguing my community, playing Russian roulette with my life because I just wanted to trust and believe in him and that he could just possibly love me like his kiss says. And I got issues like coming to the realization that I just want to conform and not show up and not care. And what does it matter? And sometimes, sometimes I don't wanna carry the burdens of this capitalist society and this racism on my shoulders, weighing me down while I struggle to carve out an existence for me and mine with life insurance and college funds and shit. My baby gonna need braces and I don't have the luxury to Burn out to, burn out to, burn out. Two and a half jobs trying to make it work while you're trying to save the fucking world. I got issues like a quarry port hanging over my head and I got issues like job security and job availability and I got issues like trying to be a dope fiend in recovery and I got issues like will my daughter make it in? can I possibly ensure that she does? I got issues, need tissues. I got issues, need tissues. I got issues and need some damn tissue. I got issues like Watching these fools on BET, they shaking their ass and rapping about bling bling and rims and shit. And who got the baddest whip while big corporations continue to bleed poor communities and we getting high to escape the reality that we are walking around deaf, dumb, and blind, and that we still slaves in our mind while the real revolution is still waiting to be televised but remains to be seen while my brothers and sisters are selling their souls for a pipe dream. I got issues, I got issues like Watching my best friend, my best friend, cling to this miserable life while a disease eats away at her in the very core of her soul. Her eyes reaching out to me, and I can do nothing but sit by and watch helplessly, and wondering what's next for her and how much longer can she hold on, trying to keep up her game face while fake folks offer lame encouragement, knowing full well she's playing with a losing hand. I got issues. I got issues like having a father who I hardly know and a mother in denial and I'm trying to raise an only child and ain't nobody got my back and my baby daddy hooked on cracking, living life in recovery while searching for security but watching the liberal racist with nowhere to place this hatred but I'm seeing a therapist. I'm living disease free and feeling guilty while my friends are living with HIV and I got issues I got issues. I got issues like realizing that my plight is not by chance, but by design. And the main issue is, is shit y'all. I struggle to even show up at all.
2: Wow. Thank you so much, Rochelle. Can we give her another round of applause? That was fantastic. (laughs) So you may have noticed that you got note cards and pencils because we're not doing the traditional Q&A where people raise their hands and only some people get called up. So if you have a question, write it down on the note card and they'll get collected and then we'll like, you know, answer the questions that way instead of having some people raise their hands, take up a lot of time, and then other people's questions don't get answered. And a reminder again, if you have just walked in or if you just need to be reminded, Even though we love Mariam Kaba and we think she's amazing and beautiful, she does not want her picture taken. So please respect that. So thank you for coming to tonight's panel. As you have noticed, it's called Women Incarceration and Carceral Feminism. Now what, you may wonder, is carceral feminism? So I'm just gonna give you a very, very brief overview. And if I start to go beyond three minutes, somebody throw something at me. Um, So what is carceral feminism? In a nutshell, it's, the kinds of feminism or the stream of feminism that thinks that policing, prosecution, and imprisonment are going to solve issues of violence against women. So if only we had more police locking up more people, if only we had more prosecution, if only we had longer prison sentences or we put more people in prison. Now, for instance, to give you an example, think about the recent outcry that followed the Brock Turner's six-month prison sentence and how there was a huge hullabaloo about the fact that he was sentenced to six months in prison. And think about the fact that there was legislation that followed almost immediately in California um, that proposed stripping judicial discretion or the judge's ability to say, you know, maybe I won't give you such a harsh sentence um, in cases where the survivor of sexual assault was unconscious or impaired. And so that's an example, that kind of outpouring of we need harsher sentences, we need more punishment for this. And think about the fact that this doesn't erase the attack. This survivor still has to live with this attack. Um, Ask yourself if being sentenced to a longer prison sentence will deter other people from attacking and from what we know about any type of harm People aren't thinking, like, oh, I'm not going to do that harm because I might go to prison and I might go to prison for a longer time rather than a shorter time. Will prison teach people not to rape? Will they teach people to respect other people's bodies, to respect women in particular? And then I also wanna bring your attention to a couple of articles that came out in the news recently where rape survivors who were testifying and going through the criminal legal system were actually incarcerated because prosecutors were afraid that they would not show up to testify or because they broke down in court trying to recount these memories and they were punished and locked up. So again, when we think about this idea of whether or not more policing, more prosecution, and more prisons is going to solve issues of violence against women, we also have to ask ourselves why we're asking such an inherently violent institution like police, courts, and prisons to solve violence. Um, To give you a brief little bit of background, in 1994, the Violence Against Women Act was passed as part of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. So it was specifically passed as part of a a huge criminalization bill. It provided $30 billion for 100,000 new police and prisons. So take a minute to think about what kinds of safety nets and prevention measures could have been created with $30 billion. What could that do in your communities to make sure that people most at risk of violence or who have survived violence had what they needed to survive and thrive? Um, Two years later, in 1996, then President Clinton signed welfare reform into law, further gutting social safety nets and pushing 6.5 million people off of welfare. That year, 1996, the number of women in prison rose by 9.1%, which is nearly double that of the number of men sent to prison that year. Four years later, at the end of 2000, that number rose even higher to 91,612. And as of 2014, so two years ago, there are over 106,000 women in prison. This does not count the 100,000 or so in local jails, and it does not count the number of trans women in jails or prisons um, who are not in the government binary scheme classified as women. It doesn't count people who are in immi- immigrant detention center. Um, so as each of these fantastic panelists speak, think about the ways in which carceral feminism, this idea that more prisons, more police, more punishment um, is going to keep us safe, has contributed to mass criminalization and mass incarceration. Now I'm gonna introduce our panels briefly. You can see their full bios in your program. Um, They all do amazing, fantastic work, but we wanna hear from them and not hear me regurgitate what's in the bios. So, let's start with Mariam Kaba, whom you should not take pictures of. (laughs) Mariam is the director and founder of Project Nia, and she currently organizes with Survived and Punished, and you can find out more at that table there, and she will speak more about that. Herschel Reeves, in addition to being an amazing spoken word poet, is also the care coordinator for for the Behavioral Health Network of the Mercy Chart Program in Springfield. So she is um, native to the area um, and a hometown girl, and she is the author of the upcoming memoir, Boss, Broken Only, Still Standing, which will be available in January 2017. Mm -hmm. Andrea James is the founder and director for Families for Justice as Healing, and a founding member of the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. And Eli Vituli teaches gender studies at Mount Holyoke College and does research on trans people in U.S. prisons. So Andrea, I'm gonna start with you. In what we hear about women in prison, we almost never hear about the efforts of currently and formerly incarcerated women in discussions about criminal justice. So tell us about the organizing of women who are directly impacted.
3: Wow. Um, Well, thank you. I'm deeply, deeply honored to be sitting at this particular table. Um, And I'm so happy that somebody was brilliant enough to bring uh, our, our connectivity out in the open um, of our issues. And so thank you for inviting me here. Um, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping before I answer that question. Uh, there's a petition that's here, uh, here in Massachusetts. Lois Ahrens is here in the front seat and she is, uh, uh, has the petition with her. They are trying to further restrict the visits in, uh, for incarcerated people in the prisons in Massachusetts to um, shrink who can come in to the prisons even more than than they already uh, are restricted. And there's a petition for that not to happen. And I hope by the time you leave here today, you'll have a better understanding of why this is important. But please don't leave here without signing this petition. They're on the tables. Oh, it's being passed around, Okay, And, And this is all while our babies and our loved ones are still being sniffed by dogs as they go into uh, the prisons here in Massachusetts, so we have a lot of work to do here, which is one of the reasons why uh, we started the work that we started in uh, federal prison for women in Danbury, Connecticut. Um, I'm a former uh, criminal defense lawyer and trial lawyer who was sentenced to serve a 24-month prison sentence in federal prison, and I'm a native of Massachusetts, native of Roxbury, Massachusetts, I come from a community that has been um, heavily under under siege uh, uh by the carceral state. i um, am married to a man who served many years in the state New York system and then served a ten year drug sentence in federal uh system so I know it from that side of things and then I you know became a criminal defense lawyer and so I know it from that perspective it's a it's a lens that is um Very um, interesting to see this from all these different angles, personal and professional. And I worked professionally within that uh, criminal legal system for 20-some odd years prior. I was 45 when I went to prison, prior to going to prison. And I have to tell you, when I left my five-month-old baby boy, who I was still breastfeeding, and uh, my 12-year-old daughter, and we have older adult children Um, When I left them with my parents and my husband in the parking lot, um, my experience pales in comparison to 99% of the women that I was locked up with. They didn't have the privilege of reporting themselves to prison um, and saying goodbye to their children in the parking lot. Hey, Vera. Most of the women that I was incarcerated with were women who hadn't seen their children Uh, for six or seven or eight years. The last time they laid eyes on their children, they were looking out the back window of a law enforcement vehicle as their children were being shuttled away by somebody else. And that was the last time that they saw them. So I was very privileged to be able to report myself and then walk myself into the federal prison for women in Danbury, Connecticut. But with all of that experience, both professional and uh, personal, I was stunned. And I was just completely heartbroken at what I encountered when I walked into a a, a prison at the time that was housing uh, over 2,000 women and um, crowded, old, uh, built for men, uh, very bad living conditions. But I had to manage, out of a 24-month sentence that I received as a lawyer, I had to manage to navigate through that prison for 18 months. I walked into a prison and met women who were serving 18 years and had another 18 or 20 to go if they were kind of come out at all. And the majority of them were there for drug offenses. And the majority of them there, was, the focus wasn't so much important about mandatory minimum sentences. It was because the majority of women who are incarcerated, particularly in the federal system, particularly around drug cases, are there for our very uh, bad, Uh, conspiracy tools that have been gifted to prosecutors that have swept through our communities and gutted our families when you would not be able to just prosecute and uh, convict somebody um, if you didn't have that tool of prosecutorial conspiracy. Um, So that's what really just, I knew this. I stood in front of a judge every single day and fought on behalf of predominantly African American and Latino women from my city who um, were being dragged through the courts for something that women shouldn't even be in front of the judge about. Um, But I was really heartbroken and stunned to look around a sea of black and brown women and to really understand what I was looking at and to really realize what it meant when we built, from 1996 to 2008, a prison every 10 days in this country and who we filled in that prison and the fact now that we are Filling it even more and at a more rapid rate with black women. Um, so I knew right away it's what got me off my bunk with, you know, postpartum depression, with uh, leaking from every orifice still of my body as having just had a baby myself and being completely just depressed after two years of being dragged through the mud, beaten, and stripped. Uh, figuratively prior to coming into prison and have that happen physically. So I knew we had to do something and in the summer of 2010 we sat around a picnic table in a very hot, hot day in Danbury, Connecticut in the prison yard and we started an organization at the time called Families for Justice's Healing. One, because I knew for sure that nobody really understood who the women are that we have in our prisons. County jails, federal prisons, state prisons, They are people that don't need to be incarcerated. And that nobody really understood that, that the general public has a very uh, skewed perception of who we are. And the second thing that I knew for sure was that that was never going to change unless those women who were most affected, those incarcerated women, were given a platform to speak from their own voices. And uh, we did that. We started that from within that prison yard, and that local work um, as the women from the Fed. We were from the feds, so we were women all over the country. So as those women, those five women that sat around that table with me started to come out, our work grew. I came home to, to Roxbury, Massachusetts, and I teamed up with Lois Aarons and, and, and Rachel Corey and a number of women from uh, Mallory Hanera and Cade and all, Jude, um, all the women that are here in Massachusetts on the ground doing this work. And uh, we hunkered down and started the pretrial working group and a number of other initiatives to uh, reform bail, to create diversion for women, the uh, primary caretaker bill, to help people understand in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts why women. Uh, we shouldn't be sending women to, to prison. We shouldn't be sending women to jail. And we spoke unapologetically and advocated unapologetically on behalf of women. And we do that to this day, unapologetically. We hold that space for and on behalf of our sisters. And when that first started to happen, we didn't have a voice, really. We were being pushed out, drowned out. Uh, not only by the men in the movement, because when you talked about the carceral state, which nobody really had heard about, but mass incarceration, um, nobody was talking about women. And uh, that was a real issue for us. And so we wanted to create that change, and we're still on the ground here in Massachusetts doing those local uh, legislative and policy initiatives to create that change. What grew out of that, though, it is what's now is the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls because we were from the federal system. Our sisters were coming out, and we were connecting with them in their home states, and then we were connecting with the sisters that they were connected with in Chicago, in New York, in Minnesota, in California, wherever, you, wherever we are. We're all over the country. And I'll wrap up here, but just to give you that reason for creating the National Council it really wasn't for the purpose of anybody else. We knew that as incarcerated, incarcerated because we still very much create the platform for our sisters on the inside to use their voices to shape policy, not to reform, not to reform the current system, but to create a human justice system, which is very different. We have no energy to spend on reforming this current system. So we know that we needed to create that platform and we needed to do it on a national level and the sisters that were doing it, like Ruby in Little Rock, Arkansas, And the sisters who are in the Mississippi Jail, state prison, who snuck a cell phone in and got the message out to us about what was happening to them in that prison. We knew that those changes had to be made from using the voices of the women who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated across this country. And that led to the formation of the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls, one, to give all of us support, to support each other, to support each other. It's very hard to do this work. And it's very hard to reconnect with people when you come home from prison because the only people that really kind of get you are the sisters that were on those bunks with you. So we do that first and foremost to give support to the women in this movement who are doing the work, who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. And the second thing is to give support to the campaigns and the initiatives that we are all working on. One of them, very important, time is of the essence, and I know I got two minutes left. Look down in front of us. Please do not leave this room without walking by and seeing the women that are here and that are listed on this thing. And I know that you're going to lose my voice, and I'm sorry, and I only have two minutes, but this is very important. (laughs) President Obama in 2014 started the Clemency Project. We have had to fight tooth and nail to have women included in that and to have them released from federal prison. We're making a difference. Okay, so all of these women here are serving unconscionably long sentences. Ramona Brandt, we just brought her home. Alice Johnson, we just brought her home. Michelle Miles, we just brought Michelle Miles home. Angie Jenkins, Angie Jenkins just came home. Josephine Ledesma just came home. And last week, last week, our baby girl sentenced, sentenced, to federal prison at the age of 19, in prison for 22 years, Danielle Metz, baby girl from New Orleans, how many days ago? Last Last week. Just came home. When we ask for your support and why it's important for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women to have the platform to use their voices to create the change, it's because right here. We know what has to happen. We are the experts. We are the experts. We know where the work needs to be done and what we need to do to get it done. And we only have a small window of opportunity. President Obama is leaving office. When he's gone, this is real. These women are real. Angie Jenkins is sitting at home right now. Ramona Brandt, Michelle Miles, they were in prison serving life with no parole for drugs. And all of these women are doing that right now, still inside prisons that they have been in for decades already. They all have 20, 15, 25 years in. We are the only people that are going to make sure that we get them home. Write their names down, take pictures of them, and make sure you contact the White House, the Justice Department, and if you go to can do clemency, can do Clemency. All of our petitions are on the Can Do Clemency website. Please support us. This is real. And when we all join our voices, I do this every week in a different city, and I ask for the support. If we all join our voices, just like Ramona and Michelle and Angie and Ledesma and, uh, uh, yes, everybody got to come home, we need, these women need to come home. They will spend the rest of their lives in prison. All right, sorry I went over my two minutes. I don't mean any disrespect to the other panelists. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Andrea. (laughs) So, Herschel. Tell us more about what happens when women are arrested. How are white women treated? How are women of color treated? We know, we should know, Um, that this is not a colorblind system. Who's offered an alternative? Who's not offered an alternative? You know, what happens?
0: All right, so first I'd like to thank you for having me with these other esteemed guests to be a panelist to speak on this subject. And I can only share from my experience. So um, my first um, introduction to being incarcerated was in New York City in Rikers Island. And so there's 1,500 women 15 to 1,600 women at any given time in Rose M. Singer Center in, um, in Queens. And um, the conditions were deplorable. But what I found when I went to prison that the majority of the women that were incarcerated were women of color for low-level drug offenses. and in my spurt in in, in in the course of my active addiction in New York, I started accumulating charges and accumulating time back and forth, back and forth, not having proper representation because what I've experienced with the criminal justice system for people of color, right? We're not properly represented, can't afford proper representation, and usually the the, the district attorney and your court-appointed lawyer work in collusion to set you up to cop out. And you continue to cop out, and you continue to, to accumulate these charges, which in turn cause you to get quarries that hinder you from coming out and trying to restructure your life. And in the course of all of, of, of active addiction, because that was the real issue that was going on for me and many others, is that we struggle with the disease of addiction, finding no way out in communities where there's no employment, You don't have a formal education. You come from um, impoverished impoverished, um, homes, no parents. So you continue to dismantle the fabric in the community when you send women to jail for nonviolent offenses. And so I was looking at these women down here. And a lot of these women have met a guy, and he was selling drugs, or he was doing whatever he was doing. And this is how they get these long federal penitentiary charges. And I was incarcerated with a young lady who was going to school, in college, doing very well for herself, and she met a young man and he was a drug dealer. And she got caught up in exactly what you was talking about, some RICO statue that caused her to get a crazy sentence like that and she ended up in federal prison. And she was in the middle of just about to finish getting her bachelor's degree. This is a travesty. So for me though, I picked up all these low level drug offenses and other crimes that you do when you're struggling with the disease of addiction. And so when I came back here to Massachusetts, you know, I found myself still caught up in the grips of the disease and then I came to jail here in Massachusetts and at that time it was Ludlow. And so the conditions for women in Ludlow were deplorable. It's a men's jail where you're on the roof, you know, and it's it, it's sad when you come out And then you decide that you want to get yourself together and then you can't, right? Because you have a quarry hanging over your head. Thank God for some of the stuff that we lobbied against and fought for some of the quarry regs in the state so that people like me can come back out and find a way to get their lives together. But what I found is that when they're making these deals for you to cop these pleas, and then you have people not of color, coming in for the exact same charge, and some of them worse, they get the option right, to go to drug treatment programs. The lawyers will fight for that for them, but will send us behind the wall. Um, In the field that I'm working now, I work directly with people who struggle with the diseases of addiction who use the emergency room as a place to try to get treatment. And so instead of incarceration, right, there should be treatment for a lot of these people, treatment on demand. We don't have that. So now how do we get into the prisons? It's a shame when you tell your 21-year-old child, like, you might want to go get a job in corrections because there's always going to be a damn jail and you're going to need a pension. you know. And that's, what I'm, that's a shame that I have to tell my daughter that, who doesn't have a formal education and has no way of getting one. She's not a rocket science. So what, is, what are you going to do for the next 20 years that you're going to make a feasible income? You, it, you, you could be a high-priced babysitter. That's a damn shame. So when I go to these treatment programs, I see nothing but white faces. But they tell us it's all us, and we're all behind the wall, and we're struggling, and we're suffering. You know, and so when women come out, they can't get their lives back because they don't know how. They struggle to try to figure out how. You have Corey's. When I came out and decided to get my life back, I had 32 charges. None of them, none of them were violent. I'm a convicted felon twice. And it was a struggle to come back. And to pull my life together, and then, and to market myself in a way that I can give back to my community. This is why I'm a, I'm an activist in my community. I'm about social justice and social change. You know, I understand the underlying racism that is implied when you're dealing with people of color, and especially around the criminal justice. This is no accident. Like my poem says, this is by design. This is by design, and um. So that's pretty much all I really have to share about it. Um, This sister right here is hard to follow that act. But um, I'm really glad to have been afforded the opportunity to come here and to share my experience. And I'm really excited to link up with this sister over here with this project to do some more work around this so that we can change some things so these ladies all can come home and we can figure out ways to get in the prisons to make a difference for the women that are still behind the wall, like education and and some of the treatment issues that they may need so that they can come out and we can break down the recidivism rate and then also quell the whole idea of what it is around the prison industrial complex and why we're building prisons and imprison people of color, women, and the disparities in the community and how that works. So thank you.
2: So Mariam, and a reminder to the audience, some of you came in late, please do not take pictures of Miriam, either when or she's speaking otherwise. or when she's just sitting there. <gasps> I told you I was gonna tell people. Um, you can take pictures of other things, like all of these women that need to come home while Miriam is speaking if you must take pictures. So, you've been working with Survived and Punished and you've been organizing with Survived and Punished and you're working on the campaign to free Brisha Meadows. So can you tell us more about the heartbreaking circumstances story of Brisha Meadows as well as efforts to free other domestic violence survivors criminalized for self defense.
4: Sure. Um, thank you all for the invitation to be here. I feel really honored and privileged to share the stage with everybody who's up here. I have so much respect for them and their work. Um, I think before I talk about Brush, I think it's important to contextualize that um, Beth Ritchie, who's a a writer and a scholar activist out of Chicago, has often said that in order to understand uh, women's experiences of offending, we have to look at their ex- prior experiences of having been harmed and their prior experiences of having been victims of violence, right, themselves, prior to any sort of offense that they may have, that may have uh, you know, landed them in prison uh, in the current moment. I think that's important. I think the second thing that's important is that when you, you have to look at what women's experiences, women and gender nonconforming people's experiences is with the prison as a whole to understand the prison. What I mean by that is that for women, mass criminalization is as important as mass incarceration. It's not just that you find yourselves behind bars but it's the arrests that make it then difficult for you to be able to do anything with your life, that criminalize you, that push you into having to do certain things to survive, which then lands you within the prison system. So while the title of this panel is about incarceration, I wanna kind of make the push that we start thinking about mass criminalization as the lens through which we understand this problem because there are so many collateral consequences to being criminalized that don't involve being behind bars. And yet you are behind bars in a kind of not just figurative way, but the cage has been extended into the community in a completely different way. So the prison is a big place. And as somebody in the 1960s used to say, America is the prison. And if you think about that, then that makes you think about the world differently, and it asks you to have different kinds of solutions to the problem. So I wanted to put that out there uh, you know, to contextualize our conversation about women, gender nonconforming people, and criminalization, incarceration, and you know, carceral feminisms. Part of what has happened that cannot be blamed only on the feminists of the 1960s and 70s, yes, who did a lot to make sure that we understood the value and the importance of valuing women's lives who were victims of violence, who put domestic violence and rape on the map, made it public issues rather than private issues, many of whom I look up to today as people who went into this with an idea of what they thought they were doing. All all along the way, though, there were people arguing, even in the 60s and the 70s, that feminists should not be partnering with the state, right? And the reason we shouldn't be partnering with the state is because of the emancipatory violence of the state in and of itself. The state itself is violent, and collaborating with the violence of the state that makes us part of that collusion of the violence that continues in the lives of particularly marginalized people. And people warned at the time that getting into a process where we were collaborating with the state would mean that the most marginalized would then get targeted by the state. And hence, here we are now. In a situation where domestic violence survivors and rape survivors are themselves finding themselves incarcerated, put in jail, quote, for their own good, and what that means is that you know, we never challenged the idea that the state would protect us, right? What we should have been challenging was state violence as connected to the interpersonal violences and displacements that state violence causes. That should have been the fight all along, and people were fighting it. They just lost. They lost, and of course it makes sense they lost because to partner with law enforcement means that you get subsumed to their agenda you can't keep your agenda when you're working with the cops. The cops have their own agenda, and your little life is not in any way a match for the resources and power and legitimacy they have in the country. So we, I just wanted to say that in advance to let you know that now we have survivors of violence who are locked up in various prisons around the country for doing things like defending themselves against violence that was put against them or criminalized for the survival techniques that they used in order to endure the violence that they were experiencing, whether that was addiction, the fact that their children were taken from them as failure to protect, the ways in which the state has now intervened in all of our lives. It's always interesting to me to think about how the right constantly talks about the, the, the need to basically drown government in the bathtub, right? like to basically kill government, that's what they want to do. But what has happened actually through, in part, their collusion is that the state has not retreated. The state has actually expanded in all of our individual lives in a way. But they don't care about that as long as it's not them. They care about the state having full control of marginalized people because they don't give a fuck about marginalized people. They want freedom for themselves and not for the rest of us. And what we need to be pushing for is for freedom for all of us at all times, right? So yeah, it's important. And we have to make those connections in real ways. Otherwise, we're going to keep losing. So I wanted to talk about Brescia Meadows in that context. Because Brescia was 14 years old, had suffered through watching her mother be pummeled, humiliated, assaulted verbally attacked, emotionally abused for most of her life. And at 14 years old, Brescia was afraid. 13, she was afraid. At 12, she was afraid. She tried to get help. She ran away from home, went to her aunt's house. Her aunt is a police officer. The cops came and took her back to her father and interviewed her in front of her father to talk about what was going on in the family, right? Completely ridiculous. At the end of July, on July 28th, Brescia killed her father while he was sleeping. She shot him. And her mother says that it was because her father had been particularly abusive in the week before and had basically threatened to kill them all. She took matters into her own hands and decided to kill him before he could kill them. And we know for a fact that in domestic violence situations, people do kill their partners, right? People do die as a result of domestic violence every single day. At least three, if we just look at women, are killed in domestic violence situations in this country. So it's real, her fear was legitimate. She's found herself in Warren, Ohio, locked up in a juvenile detention facility, waiting for the prosecutors to decide whether they're gonna charge her as an adult on a first-degree murder charge. This little girl turned 15 in jail in August, and she is now potentially facing the rest of her life locked up behind bars for being a survivor of violence who used violence to survive. And so I'm part of a fledgling new defense committee that is um, partnering with people in Warren, Ohio, organizers in Warren, Ohio, to try to pressure Uh, the prosecutor to drop the charges against her and release her. I think that it is no coincidence that she's a black girl. I don't think it's a coincidence. And I don't think it's a coincidence when we understand that black women who save our own lives are punished severely. And that is because of a history that has existed in this country from the time we set foot here against our will, that people believe black women have no selves to defend, that we actually are people who have no selves worthy of defense. And therefore, if we do defend ourselves, we are the aggressors, we are the perpetrators, and we need to be come down on so damn hard as an example. And so the prosecutors are trying to make an example of a little girl. And I say that we, have the, we as a community cannot allow them to disappear this child. We will not stand by while they try to disappear this child. We are not going to stand for it. As a community, as a country, we are going to push back against it. And when we talk about saying her name, this is part of that. When we talk about black lives mattering, we have to make black lives matter. That's what we've got to do. And the process of making Black Lives Matter is fighting like hell for each and every black person we know on a regular basis. It's important to do. So I'm just going to end by saying that I really hope on two days of action that are coming up on October 5th and 6th, we are looking for people around the country to take various actions in support of Brescia, to free Brescia. There's a handout on the table over there that some of you may have already taken, and if you haven't already, please do. If there aren't enough for you, I, I would I invite you to check out our website at freebrushameadows. Uh, sorry, it's freebrusha.wordpress.com is where you can find the information. And Brussia is B-R-E-S-H-A. I'm going to end by saying that I have worked a very long time on issues of domestic violence and sexual violence. I became a prison abolitionist because of my work in the DV and sexual, you know, in the sexual assault communities. I worked in shelters, I worked in crisis centers. I center the experiences of people who've been harmed. That's why I'm an abolitionist. Because this violent system harms survivors. And we need to eradicate it in order to be able to make sure that survivors don't continue to be harmed by the state. So I think that we really have to start to rethink the ways in which we go about supposedly helping people and protecting them. The prison itself is the rapist and the serial killer. And if you don't understand that, if that's not something that's clear to you, you simply need to ask people who've been on the inside and they will tell you that that is the truth. That is the reality of it. And when we sentence people to prison, we are sentencing them to judicial rape. We are sentencing them to be raped, in essence. So if you're, a, if you're a feminist who's against rape, the tool that you use to end rape cannot then be the very system that rapes people. <laughs> you're not going to use violence to end violence. That's only our government that tells us that. right? We got to figure out a different way. And that's why I'm a proponent of abolition. That's why I believe in community-based accountability. That's why I think we have to find a different and other way. Thank you very much.
2: So Eli, we have heard from these amazing three panelists. Um, so and so talk about the experiences of trans women, right? So we are looking at women incarceration, criminalization, and carceral feminism, not just about cisgender women, but also about trans women who are very rarely counted, you know, in government statistics and everything else, and very rarely acknowledged in media and everything else. So how are these experiences that we've talked about connected, you know, for trans women?
5: Um, I want to reiterate saying that it's an incredible honor to be on this panel, to share this space with all of you, to learn from you, Um, so thank you for being here. trans women's experiences significantly overlap with what uh, has already been discussed. Um, And I'll talk about that in one second, but I want to just mention what's going on behind me um, are images of uh, artwork done by incarcerated trans women that were published in a zine um, created by the the Chicago-based transformative justice law project of trans feminine people's, uh, incarcerated trans feminine people's art uh, and writing, and I'll hopefully have a little bit of time to talk more about the zine at the end as an example of that activist coming out of uh, prisons, um, activism by trans women. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the ways that trans women are targeted in particular ways, um, ways though that are deeply interconnected uh, with the systems uh, of power and marginalization that have already been discussed. Um, I think one of the threads that has so clearly run through everyone's uh, uh, answers to the questions is the ways that the criminal legal system systematically devalues femininity uh, and womanhood seen as deviant according to the norms of whiteness, of heteronormativity, uh, of able-bodiedness, Um, uh, of socio-economic privilege. Uh, These connections um, exist for trans women who um, uh, are overwhelmingly incarcerated, targeted by uh, policing uh, and police violence, um, particularly for trans women of color, uh, who may be one of the most over-incarcerated groups of people in the United States but their experiences are rarely uh, part of these conversations. We've already talked about the ways that women's experiences are rarely discussed in activists and scholarly work on the US prison system, Uh, and trans people's experiences are often um, not part of that, uh, even when women are discussed. Um, So uh, trans women, um, and again, particularly trans women, of color experience particular ways that femininity, their femininity and womanhood are systematically devalued. In part because dominant narratives about trans women um, uh, portray them as deceivers and criminals, as hypersexual, um, as dangerously crazy uh, and disordered, clearly interconnected with the ways that femininity and womanhood, particularly black and brown femininity and womanhood are systematically devalued um, Uh, through stereotypes, discourses, and through those sort of structures of society and the criminal legal system. Um, And trans women of color experience incredibly intense scrutiny uh, in society and the criminal legal system, and often horror and disgust, um, and are punished in a heteropatriarchal society for choosing to be feminine and women when they've been assigned male at birth. Uh, white supremacy as has been discussed by my co-panelists not only exposes trans women uh, to greater marginalization and heightened scrutiny but amplifies the negative effects of these these negative narratives and constructions uh, as they intersect in key ways with those controlling images of non-trans women of color Um, so we can see this uh, this is the the connections between these dominant narratives, negative narratives of trans women, um, and the structural marginalization that they experience of uh, high levels of poverty, homelessness, Um, police scrutiny, violence, that funnels them into the criminal legal system is articulated really well uh, from a quote from Miss Major who's a uh, a black trans activist, formerly incarcerated um, person that does incredible work uh, out on the West Coast, um, who says, quote, one of the things that happened for a girl getting involved in the pr- the prison industrial complex is we already, from the moment we decide to be transgendered person, a transgender person, are living outside the law. You are already convicted for just how you express yourself, and you might start to live a lifestyle of a person who is living outside the law. Because you can't get a, le- a legitimate job, you can't get a chance in school, you can't get a chance to function and survive as part of mainstream society. So immediately, once you've done this, you're part of the prison industrial complex." Ms. Major is talking about the experiences of systemic and interpersonal marginalization and violence that trans women of color experience regularly, deeply connected with the experiences of non-trans women of color uh, as well. Um, And once incarcerated, trans women, like all people, uh, encounter a sex-segregated system um, that is deeply invested in naturalized binary sex, not only in the creation of a a sex-segregated Institutions, um, but also in and uh, the ways that prisons and jails intimately regulate imprisoned people's gender, and this produces violence for all people who are incarcerated, but particular, but creates particular forms of violence and intensified violence for trans women in particular. Uh, this also leads me to one of the major differences in the material experience between trans women and non-trans women um, who are incarcerated, and that is the vast majority, nearly all trans women who are are, uh, incarcerated in jails, prisons, detention centers, um, are housed in men's institutions. And this is because almost universally, these institutions classify people for as male or female based on their genital status. Um, The vast, very, very few trans people in general, and particularly those most likely to be uh, incarcerated, have had the kind of genital surgery that is imagined in these these, um, policies, uh, which creates a situation where trans people are almost always classified based on their birth assigned sex. Um, and my research, uh, which looks at the history of penal policies and practices designed to manage gender nonconforming and transgender prisoners in the US, um, examines, uh, is coming from a standpoint of trying to understand why and how the trans women in particular but trans people in general experience overwhelming constant violence. Um, you could say that the prison system manages trans people and frankly all people through violence. Um, and I found that um, trans people uh, or prison administrators have been highly anxious and worried uh, and, and Uh, focused a lot of attention on gender nonconformity within penal institutions, particularly femininity within men's institutions since the early 20th century. And during that time period in the early 20th century prison administrators developed ways of thinking about femininity in particular in men's institutions as dangerous, uh, as threats to institutional security and the order of the prison. Um, And that discourse or narrative about trans femininity has continued to structure penal policies and practices leading to their management uh, through violence in various capacities. Um, So I think most uh, most importantly, I just want to highlight the ways that the prison system systematically negates the gender identity of trans people and particularly trans women. not only through their power and capacity to determine the sex classification, which is usually uh, different than how individuals actually uh, identify themselves, um, but also through frequently denying access to gender-affirming medical treatment, uh, including hormone therapy uh, and various forms of surgeries, uh, as well as denying access to gender-appropriate clothing and grooming products. Um, All prisons and jails regulate uh, appearance and access to clothing and grooming grooming products in gendered ways, which makes it very difficult for trans women, for example, to access um, bras. Uh, They're often forced to cut their hair, to conform to normative male grooming standards, um, no matter how they identify or what their appearance is when they enter into jails and prisons. Also, trans women often experience disproportionate, uh, are disproportionately placed in segregation and higher security classifications. Uh, This is something that I've noticed um, has been perhaps the most ongoing and frequent management tactic for uh, trans feminine people in men's institutions over the past 100 years. Where in the beginning, in the early 20th century and mid 20th century, the the, the, justifi- the, uh, the justification for this systematic segregation was protecting the prison from the dangers of femininity. Um, and over the past couple decades, it shifted to protecting the trans women from the dangers of other prisoners, particularly sexual violence. Yet the experience of uh, segregation and high security classification has stayed pretty much the same or very similar, um, which is an extremely violent experience um, Often it's extremely isolating. Um, It makes folks uh, more um, uh, marginalized and, um, um, excuse me, isolated, (laughs) yeah. Um, And subject to violence from staff, uh, et cetera. So these are some examples of the ways that prisons are structurally, manage trans women in particular through violence in particular ways that overlap, but are also distinct from non-trans women. Um, And as as I'm trying to get at a little bit, incarcerated trans women are often extremely isolated. Um, They're caged in a system that devalues every aspect of who they are. Um, And again, they're often marginalized from the work that that is shining light on what is going on in the prison system. But there has been activism by trans women, uh, trans feminine people, and trans people for many decades, um, making similar critiques that I have been making and that um, we all have been making of the prison system um, that is often obscured, but is becoming more and more visible through the work of folks like Miss Major, especially Miss Major. Um, And so I want to just quickly talk, uh, really quickly, about the Zine Project as one example of a piece of uh, activism coming from incarcerated trans women. So this Zine is, I think, somewhat unique um, in the sense that all decisions that were made for um, about it were made by a small collective of trans women, three of whom were incarcerated while they were making these decisions. Um, it took two years for this zine to be put together because of the restrictions of communication. Any of the folks who were incarcerated couldn't actually talk to each other. They had to go through the one woman who was on the outside, um, and I was support, and so were a bunch of other people. Were supporting the the creation of this zine. Uh, we received 140. 50 submissions from 46 people in 15 states um, this was the second volume that I'm talking about of this uh, and I just want to say briefly some common themes that came out of the art and the writing um, of the folks who submitted was love uh, and I think you can see that in the images um, which are all expressing love and valuation for trans femininity that is so regularly systematically devalued, particularly within the criminal legal system, um, community and uh, power in collective action and support. And so I'm probably over time, but I really, really want to just uh, get, share with you one quote from the Zine Collective um, about this project and about sort of their approach to it. Um, so they say, quote, the zine consists of, of strengths, pains, tragedies, sorrow, loss, happiness, and victories of trans folk who know life on the inside. This zine is for everyone who wishes to learn, enjoy, support each other, challenge misconceptions of trans people and people who are incarcerated, and abolish our oppression in prisons and on the outside. It is an avenue for which transgender people have the chance to speak for ourselves, take a stand, and say enough is enough, to share the truth of our realities with each other and with the public at large, no matter how much the state tries to hide us. We believe that we all, together as a collective whole, can accomplish great things, that a twig alone is easily snapped, but an entire faggot is unbreakable.
2: Thank you to our panelists. So you may have noticed that you had index cards and pencils and hopefully some of you wrote questions down, if not, take a minute to do so if you do have any questions. Are there folks that are willing to actually collect those index cards and bring them up so we actually know what these questions are? All right, so the wonderful people who have their hands raised, um, if you could give your index cards to them and while they're collecting, people's questions. I want to actually throw something out to you panelists. I know I've made you talk a lot and I've made you keep track of time and all this, but especially for those of you in Massachusetts, since we have a Massachusetts audience, what are some ways that people can get involved the minute they leave this room? Tomorrow morning, something. What are some things that are happening in Massachusetts that they should know about?
3: Uh, yeah, you, geez. I mean, I, look, I, I I, it's really hard. I, you know, I do these things every day, all day. I really think, uh, you can go on our website and see. You can go on real Costa prisons website. You can go on uh, Rachel's website. Um, I always say it backwards, say it. Yeah, criminal justice policy um, to get information about local, it's all the same, right? We're we're pushing against a legislature that didn't have the will or the spine to pass anything viable. We are under siege like every other state by the Council of State Governments who has come in here and commandeered the original intent, the grassroots mud intent of justice reinvestment. I don't want to waste my time. I I already am a little pissed off that uh, we have so many of you in a room and we can't talk more about how we're going to bring this baby girl home. That we can't talk about the reality of it. Because I, I remember Donna Hilton, who just came home, uh, served 27 years in prison, who went to prison at 19 for something very similar. So we've got to make sure that doesn't happen uh, to Brescia. Right? Um, so I, I really want to use my, the rest of my two seconds, and I'll shut up after this, to really encourage everybody sitting in this room to no longer, as you leave here, be complicit. Mm. The system that currently exists in this country that is a racist, corrupt Mm. system only exists because we have not stood up and said that we are not going to allow this to go further any longer. And unfortunately, the majority of the people that are most affected, that are locked in these prisons, that are locked into increasingly criminalized communities, where the prison walls have expanded into our streets and our neighborhoods, um, aren't, aren't we're, we're not enough people in this country to really take a stand. So if you don't understand that you have to stand up and, and ask what needs to be done and actually, damn it, do it, then you are part of the problem. And you are holding this in place. We are well beyond talking about individual pieces of legislation. It's the same shit that we have been cranking out session after session with lame ass legislators who are too afraid to push against whoever has to kiss the ring to pass the stuff that needs to pass. I want to talk about people, human beings in this country who are willing to stand up and say, you know what, this has to stop, and what do you need us to do? What do you need us to do to bring it down?
2: There are a lot of good questions, and we have about 13 minutes. So, <laughs> um, I'm going to give one. You don't all have to answer. If you are tired and you don't feel like it, don't. If you are on fire, go for it. Um, and there's a reception afterwards. You can ask us some questions then. Um, there are books. There's Andrea's amazing, amazing oh book. My God. Yes, it's you should buy her book. Work. Mm-hmm.
3: It gives us gas money to get the fuck back to Boston. There what? we go.
2: <laughs> um, excuse my language, I apologize. <laughs> All right, oh so um, from a prison abolitionist standpoint, which reforms are worth having and which are garbage? They didn't write that question like that. But <laughs> like we just talked about how legislation is not enough, but sure. as we stumble our way towards abolition, what's worth
4: fighting for? So, I'll just say that there isn't, it isn't um, that it's abolition or reform. That kind of makes it seem like there's one, it's what is your end goal? Is your end goal reform, is your end goal abolition? If you've decided your end goal is reform, then there are certain things that you're gonna accept. And if you've decided your end goal is abolition, then there are things that you cannot accept. And uh, particularly if you're thinking about reforms, I, I like the Gort's uh, conceptualization of reformist reforms and non-reformist reforms. If you're on the path to abolition, you want non-reformist reforms. Reformist reforms are the kinds of reforms like body cameras that actually expand the power of the state and give money to the police when what you want to do is actually erode the power of the police <laughs> if you're taking an abolitionist stand, yeah? You're not, you know, the the camera's pointed at you, not at them. I mean, the idea that somehow that is going to end police violence is ludicrous, hilarious, and pathetic. And the fact that liberals are on the bandwagon of doing this tells you everything you need to know about liberalism, right? It's a huge, huge problem for us right now in this historic moment that potty cameras are being positioned as the reform that's going to actually end violence. Hilarious. Hilarious in a bad, sad way. Um, so you don't want reformist reforms, you want non-reformist reforms. You want reforms that are gonna get you to be able to shrink the, the reach of the PIC. You wanna shrink surveillance. You wanna shrink the power of police. You wanna shrink prisons. So any reforms that close prisons, let people out, and then reinvest that money in the community is the reform you should support. I mean, it's just pretty simple. I mean, I don't understand, like, it is not rocket science. Any reform that does not let people out, that keeps the place going, is not a reform you should support. If you're trying to look at police reforms, there's a piece I wrote that said police reforms you should always oppose. And the list is not long. It's pretty easy, you should ask yourselves questions. Is there more resources going into the system? Yes? Don't support it. Are you in a position where you are expanding the net and including more people now in that net? Don't support it. These ideas of these alternatives to incarceration are in many, many instances actually widening the net, criminalizing more people and keeping more people in electronic cages. We should not be in a position right now where we're all trying to push for electronic monitoring without thinking what the hell that means. Those are shackles on the outside that are going to be very hard to get off people and make it impossible for people to find jobs, therefore returning them to the position that they were in in the first place where they then have to commit harm and crimes in order to survive. So it's pretty much, you know, it is actually not difficult. Any policy that is out there right now, if you're thinking about policing in particular, that does not reduce people's contact with the police is a policy you should oppose. The way that we're gonna end police violence is to end our contact with police. It's just it, I'm sorry, I know people have grand, I know people have grandfathers that were nice people, and cops. This is not about them and you. Today there's a young man that I know named Charles Preston who's an organizer in Chicago who organizes the BYP 100 and several other groups, and Charles wrote today, I want no relationship with the police on Twitter. And I thought to myself, a lot of people saw that and didn't understand what he's saying. I don't want a relationship with the police. The way that the conversations are being structured, think about it. When the president got on TV with that damn town hall, that was a farce. The basis of it was, how can we improve the relationship with police? They've already set the question up in a way that'll allow us never to get free. The question is not, how do we have a better relationship with them? It's how the hell do we get away from their contact with them? How do we get them out of our lives? How do we erode their power? So we can figure out how to build a different world with different social relations than we currently have. And that's why I don't believe in, when people say I'm not anti blah, 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 you know, I'm, I'm whatever, I'm anti, what is it? I'm not, oh yeah, I'm against police brutality, I'm not against police, that's ridiculous. The issue is not the individual officer. You should be, if you're an abolitionist, you're definitely against policing. You absolutely are. There's no way around it, and that's why we should be talking more about policing than we should talk about the police. Because when we start talking about the police, people think about their grandfather and their dad and their cousin, and they say Charlie's a good guy. I'm not arguing with you about Charlie. I'm saying that the system of policing itself is a regulation and social control mechanism meant to oppress particular people and keep other people in power. If you understand that that is what it is, then you can't be arguing with me about individual officers. I don't care. I do not care about Uncle Charlie. I don't. And you all have to start saying that too. I don't care. Uncle Charlie is probably super nice. And we don't care about him. We want an end to policing.
2: So, Miriam talked about alternatives that widen the net and are, you know, basically turn us into open-air prisons and cages. And this leads us into a burning question several people seem to have, which is, if we're talking about prison abolition, what are some non-net-widening, non-criminalizing alternatives? What does community accountability, what is transformative justice, what does actual work around this look like?
3: Okay, so I I don't I don't want to. Okay, yes I do. So um, I want to just go back uh, because that question's being asked again, and we've heard, um, and and some points must, might have may have been missed. What we're talking about is um, creating uh, those communities from within our communities. Okay, so all of the things that we're um, currently that, that are being discussed within the state as far as reforms are not things that are ever going to get us to a space that is not widening that net, right? So if you ask the people from within the communities who are trying to push back that, those walls, and to create a community that doesn't include police. Only we really are the ones that understand what that means. Because you, you might sit out there and ask that question again. Well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like figuring out from within our communities. Because even if you call the police, the woman is already got her, is beaten up, right? The domestic violence has already occurred, right? Um, and all that's left is for some police to come in and create further harm. Right? Um, So without the opportunities from within our communities shaped by the people that are living within the communities to create revenue, to create um, businesses, to create um, our ways of not relying on the police but relying on ourselves, to create those healthier communities and what that looks like from within our own neighborhoods, um, we have to be able to push back all of these state-designed reforms to really get to the heart of that. And we have, a, we have a, a, a bill that we've pushed hard for here in Massachusetts called the primary caretaker bill. But none of that, and we constantly get this question, well, where will they go? Right? Where will the women go? Or where will the primary caretaker, which is men and women? Right? My husband is a better primary caretaker than I will ever be. Mm-hmm. Um, where will they go? Well, so we're not talking about shackling women as like, oh, don't send them to South Bay, but shackle them. We're not talking about that. We're talking about looking at individual women and asking them, what are, what are your hopes and dreams? What are your wants? What are your needs? And, and, and taking from all of the budgets and the prisons and the probation and the, the shackles and the, all the tools and the trinkets that the system uses and, and, and gets all the money to support to, 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 to you know, find to, to invest that in our communities and to allow the people. We've, we forgot that we're human beings. And just like people living in these other communities that aren't facing all of this state action, we can figure out what's best for us, too. So yeah,
4: I also want to add that, you know, you don't like people act as though like they say things to me Like when I bring up and talk about abolition, I it's really hard for me to wrap my brain around it Anytime somebody says that to you, by the way, ask them not to wrap their brain around anything That is not a good idea. You know, it's like, you know, don't do that They say that and I'm and I'm always confused because in many places in the US white people are already living in abolition is present That's a fact There are no cops anywhere in their communities except when they call them in. The cops are all in our communities managing us. They have adequate resources, good schools, excellent jobs, good health care, all the things that we want, which is the creation of the conditions that are necessary in order not to need the punitive system. Abolition is already happening in Naperville, people. It is happening already. So you don't need to try very hard to wrap your brain around it. When those young people get in trouble, what happens to those young people? They already do peacemaking circles. They just call in Uncle Jack, who happens to be the DA, and they call in Uncle Charlie, who's the cop, and they figure out a way to handle that mistake that that young person made without putting them in the system and criminalizing them. They figured it out already. So I don't believe you when you say that you can't imagine an abolitionist future. No way. I don't believe it. The That's right. Same That's thing. right. No. Same
3: no. Is an example Same of thing. abolition in all of Same the communities thing. at work right now. Same right. thing. It's called the opioid epidemic. Same thing. Right? Same because thing. for us, it's been heroin addiction and prison. So that, that's, a, that's a very good working example that's happening right now particularly in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and yes. all of the resources that have been rolled out mm-hmm. because white kids yes. are overdosing oh. at an alarming rate
4: and they should get those resources and they should by the way. and I'm they shouldn't saying, go to prison Let's put the white kids in prison too <laughs> that's right. not no, my no. idea of freedom yes. right. all right i'm just saying we we have models We know what to do. The question is, why don't we ever do that for people of color? Thank you. Why don't we ever do that for trans people? Thank you. Not because
3: we can wrap our brain on anything. We know what it is now. Thank That's right. Thank you. That's right.
2: I think that is an excellent question to end on. Eli and Herschel, do you want to add anything to this? I'm good. Are you sure? Mm All right. Can we give another round of applause to these amazing, amazing panelists? you. Thank you. What what a privilege. And before you go, you should definitely check out if you have not signed this petition, you should. Um, there brisha. is information about Free brisha at that table. Andrea James's amazing, amazing book, Upper Bunkies Unite, and is Vicky on Bob's this table. Um, there's copies of the zine Tenacious, art and writings by women in prison, trans women and cisgender women in women's prisons. There, um, All proceeds go to send copies to women in prison, but if you do not have a woman in prison to write to, there are addresses listed there as well so you can connect with somebody inside and maybe be a little bit of a lifeline for somebody. And thank you so much for coming.